0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 15 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Margaret of Anjou. Chapter 2 Part 2 The demons of war were now let loose in all their destroying fury, and the leaders of the rival parties emulated each other in deeds of blood and horror. Edward, Earl of March, won a battle at Mortimer's Cross, February 1st, which was followed by a sanguinary execution in reprisal for his brother's murder, and the outrage offered to his father's remains. Margaret, however, pushed on, with relentless impetuosity, to the metropolis, with the intention of rescuing her captive lord from the thraldom in which he had been held, ever since the Battle of Northampton. It must have been at this time she published two remarkable manifestos, addressed to the English people. By the Queen, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you heartily well. And whereas the late Duke of N, York, of extreme malice, long hid under color, imagining by many ways the destruction of my lord's good grace, Henry the Sixth, whom God of his mercy ever preserve, hath now late, upon an untrue pretense, feigned a title to my lord's crown and royal estate, contrary to his allegiance, and divers solemn oaths of his own, and fully proposed to have deposed him of his regality, nay had been but for the said unchangeable and true dispositions of you and other true liegemen for the which your worshipful dispositions we thank you as heartily as we can and how be it the said untrue unsad unsteady and unadvised person of very pure malice disposed to continue in his cruelness to the utter undoing if he might of us and of our said Lord's son and ours, the Prince, which of God's mercy he shall not have the power to perform, by the help of you and all other my Lord's faithful disposed subjects, hath thrown among you, as we be certainly informed, divers untrue and feign matters and surmises, and in especial that we and my Lord said son and ours should newly draw towards you with an uncivil power of strangers, disposed to rob and despoil you of your goods and havers. We will that ye shall know for certain that at such time as we or our said son shall be disposed to see my Lord, Henry the sixth as our duty is. Ye nor none of ye shall be robbed, despoiled, or wronged by any person or any other sent in our name praying you in our most hearty way, that in all earthly thing, ye will diligently intend, attend, to the safety of our Lord's royal person, so that, through the malice of his said enemy, he be no more troubled, vexed, and jeopardied. And in so doing, we shall be to you, such lady, as of reason ye shall be largely content, given under our signet. Margaret, in this proclamation, endeavored at the same time to counteract the report, that her northern allies had received from her, the promise of pillaging all England south of the Trent, to shield the person of her lord from injury. She added a second manifesto, in the name of her young son, much to the same purpose, but meant more particularly to reassure the city of London, for young Edward is made to assert how improbable it was, that he, descended of the blood royal, and inheriting the preeminence of the realm, should intend the destruction of that city which is our lord's, King Henry's, greatest treasure. The address concludes with much earnest entreaties, for all men to have such care of King Henry's royal person, that by the malice of our said traitor, York, he may take no hurt. While Margaret was thus providing as far as possible, for the safety of her consort, warwick leading his royal prisoner in his train intercepted her army at the head of his forces the earl took possession of st albans and filled the streets with archers to oppose her passage when the queen attempted to pass through the town she was driven back by a storm of arrows from the market-place But, with dauntless intrepidity, she forced her way through a lane into St. Peter's Street, and drove Warwick's archers back upon the vanguard of his army, which was encamped at Barnet Heath. Here, a furious conflict took place, almost hand to hand, neither party giving quarter. Warwick's army was chiefly composed of Londoners, who proved no match for the stout northern men whom Margaret kept pouring upon them. Lovelace, who commanded a large body of city bands, having a secret understanding with the queen, kept aloof till the fortunes of the day were decided in her favor. On the approach of night, the Yorkists dispersed and fled, leaving their royal prisoner, King Henry, nearly alone in a tent, with Lord Montague, his chamberlain, and two or three attendants. His life was in absolute peril, from the fierce northern muster, arrayed by the queen, under the banner of the Red Rose, for they were unacquainted with his person, and equally athirst for plunder and for blood. The queen was not herself aware of the proximity of her captive lord, to the scene of her triumph, till his faithful servant, Howe, ran to Lord Clifford's quarters, to announce the fact. Attended by Clifford, she flew to greet him, and they embraced with the most passionate tokens of joy. Margaret exultingly presented the young Prince of Wales, who had been her companion during the perils of that stormy day, to his enfranchised sire and sovereign, and requested Henry to bestow knighthood on the gallant child, and thirty more of their adherents, who had particularly distinguished themselves in the fight the victorious queen, with the king, the prince of Wales, and the northern lords, went immediately to return thanks to God, in the abbey church of St. Albans, for the deliverance of the king. They were received by the abbot and monks, with hymns of triumph, at the church door. After this solemn office was performed, the king and queen were conducted to their apartments in the abbey, where they took up their abode. It is deeply to be regretted that the queen sullied this victory by the execution of the Lord Bonville and Sir Thomas Curiel. Some historians have said they were beheaded in the presence of herself and the young prince, her son, in defiance of King Henry's promise that their lives should be spared if they remained in the tent with him to assist in protecting him during the rout at St. Albans. Unfortunately for Margaret, the provocations she had received were of a nature calculated to irritate her no less as a woman than as a queen. The imputations which had been cast, by party insinuations, on the legitimacy of her son, had naturally kindled feelings of the bitterest indignation in her heart, and the attempt to exclude him from this succession, in favor of the hated line of York, acting upon her passionate maternal love and pride, converted all the better feelings of her nature— into fierce and terrific impulses, till at length the graceful attributes of mind and manners by which the queen, the beauty and the patroness of learning, had been distinguished, were forgotten in the ferocity of the Amazon and the Avenger. The parties of the rival roses were so nicely balanced, in point of physical force, at this period, that one false step on either side was sure to prove fatal to the cause of the person by whom it might be taken, That person was Queen Margaret. Flushed with her recent triumphs, and cherishing a wrathful remembrance of the disaffection of the Londoners, she sent a haughty demand of provisions for her army to the civic authorities. The Lord Mayor was embarrassed by this requisition, for, though he was himself faithfully attached to the cause of Lancaster, his fellow citizens were greatly opposed to it. However, he exerted his authority to procure several cartloads of salt fish, bread, and such Lenten fare, for the use of the Queen's army. But the populace, encouraged by the news that the Earl of Warwick had formed a junction with the army of the victorious heir of York, and that they were in full march to the metropolis, stopped the carts at Cripplegate. Margaret was so greatly exasperated when she learned this, that she gave permission to her fierce northern auxiliaries, to plunder the country up to the very gates of London. The Lord Mayor and Recorder, greatly alarmed, sought, and through the influence of the Duchess of Bedford, Lady Scales, and Elizabeth Woodville, succeeded in obtaining an audience with the Queen at Barnet, for the purpose of dissuading her from her impolitic revenge. Margaret would only agree to stop the ravages of her troops, on condition of being admitted with her army into the city the Lord Mayor represented the impossibility of complying with her wish, as he was almost her only adherent in London. Before the Queen and the Lord Mayor had ended their debate, the northern troops, whom Margaret had lured across the Trent with promises of plundering the rich southern counties, had already commenced their depredations in the town of St. Albans, and King Henry broke up the conference between the Queen, her ladies, and the Lord Mayor, by imploring her assistance in preserving the beautiful abbey of St. Albans from fire and spoil. The danger that threatened their lives and properties, and the disgust created by the rash and vindictive conduct of the Queen, decided all London and its vicinity to raise the White Rose banner on the approach of the heir of York, with Warwick at the head of 40,000 men and the firm refusal of the Londoners to admit the Queen and her ill-disciplined and lawless troops within their walls, compelled Margaret, with her forces, to fall back towards the northern counties. She carried with her King Henry and their son, the Prince of Wales. The next day, Edward entered London in triumph. He was received by the citizens as their deliverer, and on the 4th of March, he was proclaimed king, with universal acclamations, by the style and title of Edward the Fourth, it is worthy of notice that in three great political struggles, the suffrages of the city of London turned the balance. The Empress Maud, Margaret of Anjou, and Charles I lost all with the good will of the Londoners. The recognition of Edward the Fourth by the Londoners, though generally considered as the death blow to the cause of Lancaster, only served to rouse the Queen to greater energy of action she was the heroine of the northern aristocracy and the Midland counties, who, though they had suffered so severely for their devotion to her cause, were still ready to rally, at her need, round the banner of the Red Rose. An army of sixty thousand men was, in the course of a few days, at her command, but her generals, Somerset and Clifford, prevailed on Margaret to remain with the king and the young prince of Wales at York, while they engaged the rival sovereign of England. Edward, with nearly equal forces, advanced in concert with the Earl of Warwick to Ferry Bridge, where, on the 28th of March, Clifford and his men, early in the morning, won the bridge, and surprised the advance guard of the Yorkists. The able generalship and hot valor of King Edward retrieved the fortunes of the fight, and when darkness parted the combatants, he remained in possession of the battlefield the contest was renewed in the fields between Towton and Saxton, with redoubled fury, at nine the following morning, being Palm Sunday, which, says the chronicler, was celebrated that day with lances instead of palms. The heavy snowstorm, drifting full in the faces of the Lancastrian party, blinded their archers, who shot uncertainly, while those of York, with fatal effect, discharged their flight arrows, and then, advancing a few paces, shot a second shower among the chivalry of the Red Rose. The result of this dreadful battle, where the strength and flower of the Lancastrians perished, is best described in the immortal verse of Lorette Southey. Witness airs unhappy water, where the ruthless Clifford fell, and where Wharf ran red with slaughter, on the day of Towister's field, gathered in its guilty flood, the carnage and the ill-spilt blood, that forty thousand lives could yield. Cressy was to this but sport, Poitiers but a pageant vain, and the work of Agincourt, only like a tournament. Margaret fled with her consort and son to Newcastle, and from thence to Alnwick Castle. A mournful welcome awaited her there, for its gallant lord had fought and fallen in her cause at Towton. It is recorded by Leland, that during her temporary sojourn in this neighborhood, Queen Margaret, with her own hand, shot a buck, with a broad arrow, at Alnwick Park. This anecdote implies that the royal fugitives enjoyed the relaxation of sylvan sports, while partaking of the generous hospitality of the loyal and courageous House of Percy, on their disastrous retreat to the Scottish border. It is, moreover, the only proof of Margaret's personal prowess in the use of deadly weapons, and shows that she possessed strength of arm, and no inconsiderable skill in handling the long bow. She had been always accustomed to accompany the king in hunting, hawking, and other field sports, in which Henry the VI so much delighted, and in which he was encouraged by her as beneficial to his peculiar constitution. From Alnwick, Margaret proceeded to Berwick, with her husband, her son, and a few faithful ladies and followers, who attended the perilous wanderings of the Lancastrian court. While there, the desperation of her husband's cause betrayed the distressed queen into the unpopular measure of surrendering Berwick to the Scotch. She also negotiated a treaty of marriage between the young Prince of Wales, then in his eighth year, and the Lady Margaret of Scotland, sister of the young King James the Third, having won the friendship of the Queen Regent, Mary of Geldres, and purchased the good offices of the powerful Earl of Angus, by the promise of an English dukedom. Warwick, with shrewd policy, endeavored to traverse this negotiation, by proffering to the Queen Mother of Scotland, the hand and crown of the handsome bachelor sovereign, Edward of York, for herself, in lieu of a marriage between her little daughter and the young heir of Lancaster. But Margaret's personal influence prevailed over all opposing interests, and the Prince of Wales became the betrothed spouse of the Princess of Scotland. After all these efforts of Margaret, the marriage was finally broken by the interference of Philip, Duke of Burgundy, who forbade his niece, Mary of Gildres. Queen Regent of Scotland, to ally herself with his family foe, Margaret of Anjou, a proceeding which threw Margaret into transports of rage, and caused her to utter some vain threats against the person of Duke Philip. While Margaret of Anjou, with the formidable activity of a chess queen, was attempting, from her safe refuge in Scotland, to check her adversary's game, she was, with the king, her husband, and her little son, proscribed and attained by the Parliament of the rival sovereign of england and It was forbidden to all their former subjects to hold any sort of communication with them on pain of death. The whole of England was now subject to the authority of Edward the Fourth, yet there was still an undying interest pervading the great body of the people in favour of the blameless monarch to whom their oaths of allegiance had been, in the first instance, plighted. Poetry, that powerful pleader, to the sympathies of generous natures in behalf of fallen princes, failed not to take the Holy Henry for its theme. The following lines, from the contemporary verses of John Audley, the blind poet, have some rugged pathos, and afford a specimen of the minstrelsy of the period. I pray you, sirs, of your gentry, sing this carol reverently, for it is made of King Henry. Great need for him we have to pray. If he fare well, well shall we be, for else we may lament full sorely. For him shall weep full many an eye, thus prophesies the blind oddly. And many were the faithful hearts ready to sacrifice fortune and life at the call of the royal heroine of the Red Rose, who, at the age of thirty-two, was still in the meridian splendor of her beauty, and the full power of her genius. The devoted nature of the attachment Margaret excited among the Lancastrian chiefs, may be gathered from the following letter from two of her adherents, whom she had sent, with the Duke of Somerset, on a private mission to her royal kinsman and friend, Charles the Seventh. These letters, which were intended to break to the luckless queen the calamitous tidings of that monarch's death, were addressed to margaret in scotland but were intercepted at sea madam please your good grace we have since your coming hither written to your highness thrice one by the carvel in which we came the other two from dieppe but madam it was all one thing in substance putting you in knowledge of your uncle's death charles the seventh whom god assoil and how we stood arrested and do yet but on Tuesday next, we shall up to the king, Louis the Eleventh, your cousin German. His commissaries, at the first of our tarrying, took all our letters and writings, and bare them to the king, leaving my lord of Somerset in keeping, under arrest, at the castle of Arques, and my fellow Whittingham and me, for we had safe conduct, in the town of Dieppe, where we are yet. Madam, fear not, but be of good comfort, and beware ye venture not your person, ne my lord the prince, by sea, till ye have other word from us, unless your person cannot be sure where ye are, and extreme necessity drive ye thence. And for God's sake, let the King's Highness be advised of the same, for, as we are informed, the Earl of March, Edward Fourth, is into Wales by land, and Hark sent his navy thither by sea. And, madam, think verily, as soon as we be delivered, we shall come straight to you, unless death take us by the way, which we trust he will not, till we see the king and you peaceably again in your realm, the which we beseech God soon to see, and to send you that your highness desireth. Written at Dieppe, the 30th day of August, 1461. Your true subjects and liegemen, Hungerford and Whittingham. These faithful adherents of Margaret had, with the Duke of Somerset, been arrested in the disguise of merchants, by orders of Louis XI, who, with his usual selfish policy, was willing to propitiate the victorious Edward of York. It was to exert her personal influence with Louis, for their liberation, as well as to implore his succor in the cause of her unfortunate husband, that Margaret undertook her first voyage to the continent. Leaving King Henry at the court of Scotland, she, with her young son, the Prince of Wales, sailed from Kirkudbright, and landed at Bretagne, April 8th, 1462. According to one of her French biographers, Margaret, being entirely destitute of money, was indebted for the means of performing this voyage, to the gratitude of a French merchant, to whom, in her early days, she had rendered an important service at her father's court at Nancy he had since amassed great wealth by establishing a commercial intercourse between the low countries and scotland he was in scotland at the time of margaret's sore distress and provided her with a vessel and money for the purpose she required the pecuniary aid supplied by private friendship is however seldom proportioned to the exigencies of exiled royalty and margaret was compelled to make an appeal to the compassion of the duke of bretagne immediately after she entered his dominions the duke presented the royal suppliant with the seasonable donation of twelve thousand crowns with which she was enabled to administer to the necessities of some of her ruined followers and to pursue her journey to chinon in normandy where louis the eleventh was with his court Somerset, Hungerford, and Whittingham had been liberated before the arrival of their royal mistress, and had engaged a carvel, or small merchant vessel, in which they sailed from the inhospitable shores of Normandy, and, unconscious that she had sailed for France, long hovered off the coast of Scotland, in expectation of being able to convey her to some Flemish port. Queen Margaret of England and Louis the 11th of France were the children of the tenderly attached brother and sister Renée and Mary of Anjou, and they had been companions in childhood. But the ties of kindred and affection were little regarded by the cold and selfish son of Charles the 7th. When the distressed queen, with her disinherited son, threw herself at his feet and with floods of tears implored his assistance in behalf of her dethroned consort, she found him callous to her impassioned eloquence, and not only indifferent to her grief, but eager to profit by the adverse circumstances which had brought her as a suppliant to the foot of his throne. The only condition on which he would even advance a small loan of twenty thousand livres in her dire necessity, was, that she should, in the name of King Henry, pledge Calais to him, as a security for its repayment, within twelve months." the exigency of her situation compelled margaret to accede to these hard terms probably she considered in the very spirit of a female politician that she made little sacrifice in stipulating to surrender that which was not in her possession the agreement into which Queen Margaret entered with Louis, did not, as her enemies have represented, involve the sale of Calais, but simply amounted to a mortgage of that important place. This is the document by which the arrangement is explained. It is still preserved in the archives of France. Margaret, Queen of England, being empowered by the King of England, Henry the Sixth, her husband, acknowledges the sum of twenty thousand livres, lent to her by the king Louis the Eleventh, To the restitution of which, she obliges the town and citadel of Calais, promising that as soon as the king, her husband, shall recover it, he will appoint there as captain, his brother Jasper, Count of Pembroke, or her cousin, Jean de Foix, Count of Candel, who will engage to surrender the said town to King Louis the Eleventh within one year as his own, or pay to the said King Louis 40,000 livres, double the debt lent, sealed at Chinon, Juin 1462. This transaction was reported greatly to Margaret's disadvantage in England, and, like the recent surrender of Berwick, was considered by the great body of the people as an act of treason against the realm. Louis bestowed many deceitful marks of regard on margaret while this negotiation was in progress and she was complimented by being united with him in the office of sponsor to the infant son of the duke and duchess of orleans afterwards louis the twelfth of france whom she presented at the baptismal font it was fruitless for margaret to look for succour from her own family King René and his son were engaged in a desperate and ruinous contest with Alfonso, King of Aragon, which the resources of Anjou and Provence were overtaxed to support. Kindred and countrymen had failed her in her sore adversity, but her appeal to all true knights to aid her in her attempts to redress the wrongs of her royal spouse and vindicate the rights of her son met with the response which proved that the days of chivalry were not ended. If we are to believe the french historians says Guthrie pierre brise the seneschal of normandy impelled by a more tender motive than that of compassion or ambition entered as a volunteer with two thousand men into her service brise had formerly been the minister and favourite of margaret's uncle charles the seventh he was one of the commissioners by whom the inauspicious marriage of that princess with Henry the Sixth was negotiated, and he had greatly distinguished himself at her bridal tournament. Eighteen years of care and sorrow had passed over the royal beauty, in whose honor Sir Pierre de brise had maintained the preeminence of the daisy flower against all challengers, and in the place de Carie, and now she, who had been the star and inspiration of the poets and chevaliers of France, had returned to her native land, desolate, sorrow-stricken, and discrowned. Pierre de Brisey manifested a devotion to her interests, which proved how little external circumstances had to do with the attachments excited by this princess. Margaret sailed for England in October, after an absence of five months, and, eluding the vigilance of Edward's fleet, which had been long in waiting to intercept her, she made the coast of Northumberland. She attempted to land at Tynemouth, but the garrison pointed their cannon against her. According to some accounts, she resolutely effected her purpose, but had scarcely set her foot on shore, when the foreign levy, understanding that Warwick was in the field at the head of forty thousand men, fled to their ships in a panic, leaving Queen Margaret, her son and Brise, almost alone. A fisherman's boat was the only vessel that could be obtained for these illustrious fugitives, and in this frail bark they escaped the fury of the storm, which dashed the tall ships of the recreants who had forsaken them on the rocky coast of Bamborough. Margaret and Brise were the first who carried the evil tidings of the loss of her munitions and dearly purchased treasures to her anxious friends at Berwick, The fate of the frenchmen who were cut to pieces by sir robert ogle when they fled to holy island was probably regarded as a minor misfortune hope must have been an undying faculty of margaret's nature and at this crisis it animated her to exertions almost beyond the powers of woman the winter was unusually severe and she the native of a southern clime exposed herself unshrinkingly to every sort of hardship Once more she sought and obtained assistance from the Scotch, and placed her devoted champion, Brise at the head of the forces with which she was supplied. She then brought King Henry into the field, who had previously been hidden in her safe refuge at Harlet Castle. Their precious boy she left at Berwick, not wishing to expose his tender childhood, though by this time well inured to hardships, to a northern campaign during so inclement a winter this was her first separation from her son and doubtless it was keenly felt by margaret who was apt at times to forget the heroine in the mother success at first attended her efforts the important fortresses of bamborough alnwick and Dunstanburgh were taken by her and garrisoned with scotch and frenchmen But these alliances did her more harm than good with the people of England, and popular prejudice is always more terrible to princes than an army with banners. In the course of this campaign, a defection happened among her own party, for which Margaret was not prepared. Somerset, for whose house she had sacrificed so much, surrendered the castle of Bamborough to Warwick, on condition of receiving a pension from King Edward, and with Suffolk and Exeter, carried their perjured homage to the throne of that monarch. This was followed by the fall of Dunstenberg and Alnwick. Yet Margaret continued courageously to struggle against fortune, and speedily succeeded in winning back Somerset, Exeter, and Percy to the banner of the Red Rose, and also in retaking those fortresses. In the spring of 1463, Percy was defeated and slain at Hedgley Moor by Mortimer, and a few days later, England was again set on a field, at the fatal battle of Hexham. King Henry, says Hall, was the best horseman of his company that day, for he fled so fast, no one could overtake him, yet he was so closely pursued, that three of his horsemen, or bodyguard, with their horses, trapped in blue velvet, were taken, one of them wearing the unfortunate monarch's cap of state, called a bicocket embroidered with two crowns of gold, and ornamented with pearls. When the victorious Yorkists broke into the camp at levels, Margaret, seized with mortal terror for the life of her boy, fled with him on foot into an adjacent forest, guarded only by breze Here, in momentary dread of being overtaken by the foe, she pursued her doubtful way by the most unfrequented paths. Before long she unfortunately fell in with a gang of robbers, who, attracted by the richness of her dress and that of the young prince, surrounded and despoiled them of their jewels and costly robes of estate. While they were quarreling about the division of the plunder, Margaret, whose intrepidity and presence of mind had been the means of extricating her from a similar peril when captured by Lord Stanley's followers after the Battle of Northampton, snatched her son up in her arms and fled to a distant thicket unobserved by the pitiless ruffians, who were deciding their dispute at sword's points. When the shades of evening closed round, the fugitive queen and her son crept fearfully from their retreat, and, uncertain whither to turn for refuge, began to thread the tangled mazes of the forest, dreading, above every other peril, the misfortune of falling into the hands of King Edward's partisans. It was possible that one random turn might lead them into this very danger. While Margaret, bewildered with doubt and alarm, was considering what course to pursue, she perceived, by the light of the moon, another robber, of gigantic stature, advancing towards her with a drawn sword. Gathering courage from the desperation of her situation, Margaret took her son by the hand, and presenting him to the freebooter, with the dignity of look and bearing that were natural to her, she said, "'Here, my friend, save the son of your king.' Struck with astonishment at the majestic beauty of the mother, and the touching loveliness of the boy, the robber dropped his weapon at the feet of the royal suppliants, and offered to conduct them to a place of safety. A few words explained to the queen that this outlaw was a Lancastrian gentleman, who had been ruined in King Henry's service, and she frankly committed herself and her son to his care. Taking the prince in his arms, he led the queen to his own retreat, a cave in hexham forest where the royal fugitives were refreshed and received such attention as his wife was able to afford strong confirmation is given to this incident by the local traditions of hexham and no one who has minutely surveyed the antiquities of that town can doubt of the fact the cave is in a most secluded spot on the south bank of the little rapid stream which runs at the foot of black hill It is still known by the name of Queen Margaret's Cave, and at the time it gave shelter to her and the Prince of Wales, it must have been surrounded by forest. It is about two miles from Hexham. The entrance to the cave is still very low, and was formerly artfully concealed from sight. Its dimensions are 34 by 14 feet. The height will barely allow a full-grown person to stand upright. A massive pillar of rude masonry, in the center of the cave, seems to mark the boundary of a wall which, it is said, once divided it into two distinct apartments. When warmed and cheered by fire and lamp, it would not appear quite so dismal a den as at present. Such was the retreat in which the queen and prince remained perdue, for two days of agonizing suspense. On the third morning, their host encountered Sir Pierre de Brise, who, with his squire Barville, and an English gentleman, having escaped the robbers at Hexham, had been making anxious search for her and the prince. From these devoted friends, Margaret learned the escape of her royal husband, and the terrible vengeance that had been executed on Somerset, and her faithful adherents, the Lord's Hungerford and Ruse. Margaret is said to have received these tidings with floods of tears, the first she had shed since the overthrow of the despairing hopes of Lancaster on the red field of Hexham. A few hours later, the English gentleman by whom Brise was accompanied, having gone into the neighboring villages to gather tidings of public events, encountered the Duke of Exeter and Edmund Beaufort, the brother and successor of the unfortunate Henry, Duke of Somerset. He conducted them to the retreat of the proscribed queen and the youthful hope of Lancaster. Margaret's spirits revived at the sight of these princes, whom she had numbered with the slain of Hexham, and she determined to send them to their powerful kinsman, the Duke of Burgundy, to solicit an asylum at the court of Dijon, for herself and the Prince of Wales, while she once more proceeded to the court of Scotland, where she imagined King Henry had found refuge. On quitting the dwelling of the generous outlaw, from whom she had received such providential succor in her dire distress, she accorded all she had to bestow, her grateful thanks, but the dukes of Somerset and Exeter offered a portion of their scanty supply of money, as a reward to his wife, for the services she had rendered to the queen, but with a nobility of soul worthy of a loftier station, she refused to receive any portion of that which might be so precious to them at a time of need. Of all I have lost, exclaimed the queen, I regret nothing so much as the power of recompensing such virtue. Accompanied by Brise and his squire, and attended by the outlaw of Hexham in the capacity of a guide, Margaret and the young prince, her son, took the road to Carlisle, where a passage to Scotland had been previously engaged for them, by the care of the gentleman who had accompanied Brise, and they safely landed at Kirkcudbright. The treaty which had been concluded between King Edward and the Scottish Regency, rendered it necessary for Margaret to maintain a strict incognito. But there was an Englishman of the name of Cork, who was unfortunately well acquainted with her person, the majestic beauty of which it was scarcely possible to disguise. He was a Yorkist, and determined to open a path to fortune, by delivering to King Edward the last hope and support of the cause of the Red Rose." He had confederates in the town, and with their assistance, he surprised Margaret's brave protectors, Brise, and his squire, Barville, and hurried them on board a vessel which he had provided for the purpose, and with less difficulty, succeeded in the abduction of the helpless queen and her son. Neither party was aware of the captivity of the other, till the first rays of the sun enabled the queen and Brise to recognize each other, and afforded a sad conviction of their peril. The great personal strength of Brise, however, had enabled him to extricate himself from his bonds in the course of the night, and he watched an opportunity for removing those of his squire. They were then two against five, but, having got possession of the oars, they contrived to master their opponents, and after a desperate struggle, slew some and threw the others overboard, not without extreme peril of upsetting the boat. After tossing for some hours in the Gulf of Solway, the wind drove the boat on a sandbank near Cantyre, where there appeared every chance of her being beaten to pieces by the waves. It was, however, so near the shore, that Brise, wading knee-deep in sand and water, succeeded in conveying the queen on his shoulders to a dry spot, and Barville performed the same service for the Prince of Wales. The coast they had gained was wild and barren, but here at least, Margaret had no fear of being recognized since the peasantry was so ignorant that they could not believe any one was a queen unless she had a crown on her head and a scepter in her hand in one of the obscure hamlets of this rude country margaret remained with her son under the care of roseau while she dispatched barville to edinburgh to ascertain from public report the general state of affairs in england and the fate of king henry the tidings were such as to convince her that she must hoard her energies for better days, and though she privately visited Edinburgh, to try the effect of her personal eloquence once more, she only found that her presence caused great uneasiness to the government. All the favor she could obtain was assistance for returning to her friends in Northumberland, who still continued with determined valor to hold out the fortress of Bamborough. From this place, Margaret, with a heavy heart, embarked for Flanders, with her son and some of her ladies, who had taken refuge there, after the disappearance of their royal mistress. Sir John Fortescue, who had abandoned his office as Lord Chief Justice of England, to follow the fortunes of the proscribed queen and his princely pupil. Dr. Morton, afterwards the famous Cardinal Archbishop of York, and about 200 of the ruined adherents of Lancaster, shared her flight. Her usual ill luck, with regard to weather, attended Margaret on this voyage. The first day she sailed, her vessel was separated by a terrible storm from its consort, and during twelve hours, she expected every moment to be engulfed in the tempestuous waves, and when the violence of the hurricane abated, her ship was so greatly damaged, that she was forced to put into the port of Ecluse, in the dominions of her hereditary enemy, the Duke of Burgundy. She left Prince Edward at Burges and went on to Lilla, to meet the eldest son of Philip of Burgundy, Count de Charrois, whose mother was nearly related to Henry the Sixth. This prince came out of the town to meet Margaret, with the greatest marks of respect. From Melilla, she passed on to Bethune, to meet Duke Philip. But, as he was at St. Paul, he sent a guard of archers for her escort, she having proposed traveling by the way of Hesden, because she dreaded the skirmishing parties from the garrison of Calais. When she arrived at St. Paul, the Duke of Burgundy gave her a very honorable reception, and entertained her with grand festivities. When he understood her great pecuniary distress, and the painful straits to which her faithful followers were reduced, he, with truly princely munificence, presented to each of her ladies a hundred crowns, to Brizay, who had expended the whole of his fortune in her service, a thousand, and to Margaret herself, he gave an order on his treasurer, to pay her on the spot, twelve thousand crowns. The treasurer took a base advantage of the misfortunes of the queen, by endeavoring to defraud her of half the money. Margaret, who was not of a spirit, to put up tamely with such a wrong, informed the duke of the villainy of his minister. Philip, in a transport of indignation, ordered him to be put to death, and the sentence would have been executed, but for Margaret's intercession in his favor. She was sensibly touched with the generous treatment she had experienced from the Duke of Burgundy, whom, from her cradle, she had regarded with the deepest rooted hostility, and had often been accustomed to say, that if by any chance he were to fall into her hands, she would make the axe pass between his head and shoulders." If this unfeminine and impolitic speech reached the ears of Philip the Good, he did not allow it to influence his conduct towards the fallen queen, when she condescended to become a suppliant for his bounty. But, remembering only that they claimed their descent from the same royal stock, he treated her in all respects as a princess of the House of France, and the consort of a king of England. He would not, however, violate his treaty with King Edward, nor suffer his subjects to be involved in her quarrel, but when she had stayed, as long as it pleased her to remain his guest, he sent her with an honorable escort to Bar, the dominion of her brother. King René felt deeply grateful for the hospitable welcome thus afforded to his distressed child, by his ancient antagonist and victor. He addressed a letter to Philip of Burgundy, full of thanks, declaring, he could not have expected, nor did he merit, such attentions. After quitting the court of Burgundy, Margaret traveled to Lorraine. She passed some days at Saint-Michel, with fifty nobles and gentlemen of her suite. Part of that year she sojourned with her sister, Yolante, Countess of Vaudamante, and her noble-minded brother, John of Calabria. After this time she abode at Amboise, the court of the Queen of France. The distracted state of King René's affairs, in his own dominions, utterly precluded him from exerting himself in his daughter's service, though not unfrequently solicited to draw his knightly sword in her cause. The Provençal bards took the heroism and misfortunes of their hapless princess for their theme, and René's own minstrel and namesake was accustomed to assail his royal ear in festal halls with these strains. Arouse thee, arouse thee, King René, nor let sorrow thy spirit beguile thy daughter, the spouse of King Henry, now weeps, now implores with a smile. Rene, however, was compelled to remain a passive sympathizer in Margaret's affliction. All he could do for her was to afford her an asylum in her adversity. He gave her the ancient castle of Curere in the diocese of Verdun, near the town of St. Michel, for her residence, and contributed to her support, as far as his narrow means would allow. Here, Margaret, bereaved of all the attributes of royalty, save those that were beyond the power of adverse fortune to alienate, dwelt with the remnant of her ruined friends, and occupied herself, in superintending the education of the last tender bud of the Red Rose of Lancaster, whom she yet fondly hoped to see restored to his country, and his former lofty expectations. During the seven years of their exile, Sir John Fortescue continued to reside with Queen Margaret and her son, and observing that his beloved pupil was too much taken up with martial exercises, he wrote his celebrated work on the Constitution of England, de laudibus legum anglais, to instruct him in a higher sort of knowledge, the true science of royalty. A deeper shade of gloom pervaded the exiled court of Margaret, when the tidings reached her, through her secret adherents in England, that her unfortunate consort had at length fallen into the hands of his successful rival. When King Henry fled from the lost battle of Hexham, he gained an asylum among his loyal subjects of Westmoreland and Lancashire, where he was many months concealed, sometimes in the house of John Mackle, at Crackenthorpe, sometimes like a hermit in a cave. There are, even now, traces of his residence in several of the northern halls and castles. The glove, boot, and spoon he left with his kind host, Sir Ralph Pudsey, at Bolton Hall in Yorkshire, are still preserved. They were the only gifts fortune had left in his power to bestow. The size of the glove and boot show that his hands and feet were small. There is also a well where he used to bathe, which retains the name of King Henry's well. King Henry's retreat in Lancashire was betrayed by a monk of Abington, and he was taken by the servants of Sir John Harrington, as he sat at dinner at Waddington Hall. He was conducted to London in the most ignominious manner, with his legs fastened to the stirrups of the sorry nag, on which he was mounted, and an insulting placard affixed to his shoulders. At Islington, he was met by the Earl of Warwick, who issued a proclamation forbidding any one to treat him with respect and afforded an example of wanton brutality to the mob by leading the royal captive thrice round the pillory as if he had been a common felon crying out treason treason and behold the traitor henry endured these outrages with the firmness of a hero and the meekness of a saint forsooth and forsooth ye do foully to smite the lord's anointed was his mild rebuke to a ruffian who was base enough to strike him in that hour of misery. The following touching lines which have been attributed to Henry the Sixth, were probably written during his long imprisonment in the tower. Kingdoms are but cares, state is devoid of stay, riches are ready snares, and hasten to decay. Who meaneth to remove the rock out of his slimy mud, shall mire himself, and hardly scape, the swelling of the flood. There are preserved two sentences written and given by him to a knight who had the care of him. Patience is the armor and conquest of the godly. This meriteth mercy, when causeless is suffered sorrow. Not else is war but fury and madness, wherein is not advice, but rashness, not right but rage, ruleth and reigneth. Queen Margaret must have felt the indignity and cruelty with which her unoffending consort was treated as the greatest aggravation of all her own hard trials. She was still formidable to the reigning sovereign of England, who established a sort of coast guard to prevent her from effecting a sudden descent on the shores of England. It has been confidently asserted that Margaret herself visited England, disguised as a priest, in the train of the Archbishop of Narbonne, In fourteen sixty seven William of Worcester records that various persons who were apprehended on suspicion of having letters from queen margaret in their possession were tortured and put to death sir thomas cook a london alderman was accused of treason and fined eight thousand marks because hawkins one of margaret's agents when put to the rack in the tower confessed that he had attempted to borrow money for her of this wealthy knight and though Sir Thomas Cook had refused to lend it, he was brought in great peril of his life, for not having disclosed the attempt of Hawkins. A poor shoemaker was pinched to death, with red-hot pincers, for assisting the exiled queen to carry on a correspondence with her adherents in England, but he resolutely refused to betray the parties with whom Margaret was in league. When Harlech Castle was taken in the same year, many letters, to and from Queen Margaret, fell into the hands of King Edward. An emissary of Margaret, who was taken in the stronghold of her outlawed adherents, which had so long held out in defiance of Edward and all his puissants, accused the Earl of Warwick of having, in his late mission to the continent, spoken favorably of the exiled queen, in his conference with Louis the Eleventh at Rouen. Warwick refused to leave his castle to be confronted with his accuser, Two years afterwards, he was in arms with the avowed intention of hurling Edward the Fourth from the throne, but was forced to retreat to France where King Louis received him. End of section 15. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.